Welcome back to another edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. Now about a week into training camp, everybody excited not only for the start of the season, but preseason as well. That is right around the corner, just about a week away. My name is Andy Bullbarch, joined once again by Browns beat reporter Scott Petrek. Scott, great to be joined alongside you once again. And boy, no shortage of stories, <laughs> that's for sure. Not quite a full week at a training camp, and there's a lot to talk yeah. about. And I know that for the Browns, in full gear now and pads, ready to rock and roll, it's been a pretty exciting first week of camp. It has, you know, and it started with OBJ, right? Odell Beckham Jr. I think that's why a lot of people showed up and a lot of the media showed up to watch him. Hasn't disappointed. Made plays right out of the gate. You know, I think it was two of the first three plays in the 11-on-11 drills. Makes really good catches right on the sideline and says, okay, I'm here. Um, and then, so that that set the tone and it kind of validified or validated the excitement around training camp and around his addition to the team. And then, you know, they're practicing for over two hours a day. They went for five straight days, and that's a lot of football, a lot of information to take in, a lot for the fans to see, a lot for the media to see. So, yeah, I think it's gotten off to a fast start, and there's so much to pay attention to. New coach, right, year two quarterback, all these expectations. So I think it has been a pretty action-packed first week. Absolutely, it has. And one thing I want to hit on before we get into our first order of business here, one of the things that was mentioned at the very beginning of camp was the timing in which everything goes down. So 10 o'clock yep. is usually when everything gets going. How new is that? And it seems yeah. like that's a welcomed, I want to say a welcomed change here of sorts, because it seemed like before when practices were taking place a little bit later on, you know, players didn't have as much time to go back and observe themselves in practice. Now, after they get done practicing right away, they can go right back and look at the film and see what they need to improve on. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's good for the media because we get it going earlier and theoretically you're done earlier. And I think what it boils down to is, you know, they did away with two days, but you still have a walkthrough. So some coaches like to have the walkthrough in the morning, then they go watch film, and then they have the real practice in the afternoon. Freddie likes to do it the other way. So he has real practice early, then there's meetings, then they go back and walk through it in the afternoon, have more meetings. So it's just personal preference. But I think the players like it. Now you have to be ready earlier, right? You can't be showing up. You know, I mean, they get there early enough, but you can't just be sleepwalking at 10 a.m. you got to be ready to go. So, you know, I'm good with it. I think you get a little, you miss a little bit of the heat of the day. Not that it's not hot at noon, but you're getting off the field right when it starts to get hot. So I think that's, I think the players prefer that. Um, you know, and for a fan situation, you know, you're probably skipping work to either go to 10 o'clock practice or 3.30 practice. So I'm not sure there's been any difference there. So, you know, I think it's probably an overall better situation. It just feels more like a normal day. Then when all of a sudden you're starting practice at 3.45 or 4. But it does have me flashing back. I think Mangini might have been the last guy to practice in the morning. But we were still in two days back then. So he'd practice in the morning. And then I remember being out there when, like, it's sunset almost. It's like 7 o'clock and the sun's going down. And back in those days, you didn't have as much internet. So you felt like you were done for the day and it was fun. You're just watching practice. You had, you at least for me, my stories were basically done. And it was a more relaxing way to watch practice, and it's not as hot and the sun's going down, but we'll never see those kind of days again because that's just not how the media works anymore, and there's no more two-a-days. Yeah, for better or worse, there are yeah, no right, more two-a-days, right. but yeah, we'll get into that at a different time. Let's break into what's going on at camp so far. 
and tempers are going to flare. That's yeah. to be expected. But there was a pretty interesting fight that ended up resulting in the team having to run sprints, which at the end of it <laughs> ended up with some fans saying some not-so-nice things and encouraging defensive end Chad Thomas to hustle, and then he flipped the fan the bird. So there's a lot going on yeah. here. And, you know, it was Chad Thomas essentially getting into a fight with tight end Farrell Brown. It caused the team to run sprints. And as Ch- Chad Thomas was running sprints, one of the fans, and you were right there yeah. for it, you tweeted about it when it happened, he mentioned to Chad Thomas that he thought he needed to hustle, and he turned around and just kind of gave the fan the finger. And it, it was one of those things where you tweeted it out. It got a lot of action. A lot of people responded to that. Sure. Yeah, there's a ton to un- unpack from that situation. I would Let's start at the end is with the finger. <laughs> um, so they're running laps. Chad Thomas is obviously still emotional from the fight, probably from the fact that Freddie's yelling at him and making his whole team run sprints. And it was it felt like more than one fan, but one fan, the voice was the loudest, was telling him, hey, you made your teammates run these sprints. You should be hustling more. And I'm watching Chad run, and he was running at the same pace as everybody else. I mean, Odell ran the fastest, and then you could, you know, there was a ladder kind of a, you know, a step down. You know, Jarvis was here and somebody here. But Chad was keeping up with the guys his size, so it wasn't like he was loafing, in my opinion. But this fan felt the need to get on him, and Chad had heard it for a while, and on his third or fourth sprint back, <laughs> just right in front of me, gives the guy the finger. It's like, uh-oh. Um, and obviously the fan saw it. So it's just something you don't see every day, right? And it makes me wonder about, you know, why does this fan feel the need to get on him, right? I mean, he didn't do anything to the fan. Why does the fan feel like he should be in the coach's role and telling Chad Thomas to hustle. You know, if Freddie thought he needed to hustle, Freddie would tell him. I mean, why does this fan kind of feel entitled? I wonder about that. Um, but the next part, and obviously Chad should not be giving the finger to the fans. It's a bad idea. You shouldn't pick on fans. You shouldn't instigate fans. You shouldn't be giving the finger in front of all these kids that are there. It's a bad idea. I'm surprised he hasn't apologized. Yes, yet. Um, he declined to talk to the media after practice Sunday. Freddie Kitchens didn't even really – he said he talked to him behind the scenes, but he wasn't going to tell us about it. But he wasn't even that strong, like, hey, we can't have our guys doing that. So I felt that reaction was a little weird. Um, but all, so, you know, it's it's all of it. It's that and that and that. But then another thing that I think is important is the fact that Freddie's making the whole team run for this, right? It's a couple guys getting in a fight, and really Chad was the main guy because he wouldn't stop. Right, I mean, we've seen fights, and this wasn't even a bad fight where there's punches thrown. It was a skirmish. He and Farrell Brown were locked up, wouldn't let go after Freddie kept blowing the whistle, and then Chad Thomas just would not let up. Like, they're trying to break it up, and he's continuing to go after Farrell and trying to get to him. So that's what bothered Freddie because it's a for-sure penalty during a game. He says, we're not going to practice penalties. And then I was talking to Joe Schobert, the linebacker, and he said, Freddie told us in the spring, if we fight – we're going to run sprints. The whole team's going to run sprints. So he's just, he goes, he's doing what he told us he was going to do. He's a man of his word. So I appreciate that he followed that up because some coaches wouldn't, right? Oh, we don't need to run sprints at the end of practice. But Freddie said, no, this is what I'm going to do. So I like that about him. In the fight part of it, that happens, right? We've all seen football practice. It happens. It'll happen tomorrow. It'll happen Friday. It's just going to happen. But Freddie wants to draw that line where you better break it up. And we can't afford to have penalties. And Chad just was out of his mind going after Farrell Brown. 
And, and you really can't have that, and that's the message of the sprints, and then it led to everything else. And tempers are going to flare. It, it happens, and I think sometimes your emotions get the best of you. You mentioned, look, the the freshness of the sprints, the freshness of the discipline. You don't know what's going through his mind as he's running these right, sprints. Right. And, you know, I think he was a little bit vulnerable at the time. Yes. No question about that. Well, moving into some areas where I think fans might be at least a little bit concerned. The kicking game, I think, has drawn a lot of attention most of it not very good. How concerned yeah. are you with the kicking game at this point? Do you think it's too early to worry, or is there some legitimate concern? Oh, you know what? Let me add one more thing to that Chad Thomas thing. I'm, I just flashed back. He blocked me on Twitter afterward, <laughs> So, um, which is I think is the first professional athlete to do that to me. All I did was tweet the facts, right? Chad Thomas just flipped off a fan, and I got back into the room and checked Twitter to see if he had apologized, and instead I was blocked. And I wasn't the only media member. Like, a few of us in the room were, but I thought that was an interesting reaction for him to have. Wow. But um, back to the kickers, I, I do think it's too it, – I don't think it's too early to worry. Freddie Kitchen said, yeah, it's too early. I do not. First of all, I would never draft a kicker. I would never draft a kicker in the fifth round because I think, number one, you can find him anywhere. You can find one off the street. Adam Vinatieri was cut numerous times. Phil Dawson was cut numerous times. And I would rather take a guy that could develop into a pass rusher or an O-lineman or a kick returner, whatever it is, right? The, the Browns took Austin Seibert in the fifth round. John Dorsey drafted Jannard Avery in the fifth round last year, and he had however many sacks, five sacks, and he looks like he's a player in this league. And I don't want to trade that for kind of a long shot on a kicker. That's my perspective. So I go into thinking that. Then he shows up for rookie minicamp, and the first kick he kicked, I was like, oh. Like, it, it wasn't close to going in, and John Dorsey's standing under the uprights. I'm like, yeah, okay, not a great first impression. And now, obviously, he makes some kicks, and he's got a pretty big leg. But then I watched him in minicamp, and I was not impressed. And then we get to training camp, and I've seen him kick twice in training camp, and he's missed, and he's missed badly. And on Sunday, he was one for five. And the only pressure – the only pressure period that he has of practice, he went one for five. And the fifth one was to end practice as a 51-yarder. Yeah, it was into the wind, but it's hot. The ball travels. It shouldn't be any problem getting the ball there. And it was like he shanked it. It went, it fluttered high, soft, and wide right. And I don't want to judge a guy in one kick, but when you start to see it pile up, I just, if I were John Dorsey, if I were Freddie Kitchens, I would not feel comfortable with this guy week one, to beat the Tennessee Titans. And that's all it that's all it comes down to, in my opinion. Now we can argue whether or not Greg Joseph is better. I think he is. I saw some promise in Greg Joseph last year. I think he's got a big leg as well. He was better. He's four for five on Sunday as opposed to one for five. So I'm not saying automatically give the job to Greg Joseph, but I sure as heck would be paying attention to the waiver wire to see what kickers are out there. And I would not let the fact that I drafted Cybert in the fifth round sway me at all on keeping him on the roster. Anxious to see how that entire situation develops over the next few weeks, especially heading into the early stages of the preseason games as well. Another area that at least for now seems to be an area of a little bit of concern anyways, I would say, is that right guard situation. I mean, does that yep. really bother you at all at this point? Because Brown fan, Browns fans look at that and they think, boy, shouldn't our Austin Corbett just run away with this right now? But right now, he's not the guy getting those first team reps consistently. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I'm not as worried 
is the kicker situation, and maybe that's because I have a hard time personally evaluating right guard because there's a million bodies around as opposed to watching a kicker make or miss. But I definitely think that it's a disappointment that Austin Corbett has not seized control of that job. I think it would be a huge disappointment if he doesn't win the job. And, but And I think Freddie Kitchens is being completely honest when he says nobody has the lead and I'm waiting for somebody to take control. And that's unsettling because Corbett should be that guy. So there's a lot of time for that to work itself out. At least they have options there, right? They have Corbett. They have Kyle Kalis, who I'm trying to finish a story today, a long story about Kyle Kalis. He's a St. Ed's kid. His dad played in the league. His stepdad was a huge influence on him and then had a heart attack and died recently. So he's in the mix. He's a strong guy. He's a weight room guy. Eric Cush has some experience in the league. So they have options, and I think that could be something. You don't want it to go this way, but it could be something where maybe you start – the season starts with Corbett, and then if he struggles, you go to somewhere else. So I could see that happening. It's not ideal. But we have to pay so much attention to it because the offensive line is the one kind of area that could sabotage this offense, right? We think they're going to be great at receiver. We expect them to be good at quarterback with Baker. The running game should be fine. All that's left is the line. But if you can't open holes, and more importantly, if you can't protect Baker – that's when stuff starts could go south. And it starts with the right guard we're looking at. You also have to look at the two tackle spots with Greg Robinson and Chris Hubbard. Miles Garrett has been in the backfield all day, every day. And I know Miles is great, but somebody's letting him into the backfield, right? So I, I think John Dorsey will be looking at those five positions across the front, or really three of the positions because Betonio and Treader are fine and saying, are we okay? Or do I need to go out there and try to swing a trade or really be active on that waiver while you're looking for a guy that can come in and start at one of those spots? I think he, I know he feels more comfortable about the tackle spots, but, but I, think, I know that depth could be a concern, especially at left tackle. I think we might have talked about this. There's just no backup left tackle that screams at you. So if Greg Robinson gets hurt, if he struggles, what are you going to do there? And I think John Dorsey knows that. And we'll have all his scouts looking to see what's that plan B if something goes wrong there. You're dialed into the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast with me, Andy Bullbarch, and Browns beat reporter Scott Petrak talking about the first week of camp and, well, what would a conversation be without talking about the Duke Johnson saga? <laughs> and I'm not sure if no news is good news. I think we haven't heard as much recently because right. he's been injured. But, of course, his new agent, Drew Rosenhaus, is around once again. What do we make of all this? Is no news good news with Duke Johnson? It is if you think that Duke being here is good news, which I do, because I think Duke had real value to the team. I like Duke as a guy. I like him in the locker room. I think he's a good guy to have in that locker room. So I don't think anything's changing anytime soon. I know Drew Rosenhaus, Duke's new agent, wants him out of town. I know Duke wants to be traded. But John Dorsey's not giving in. And Drew Rosenhaus met with John Dorsey a week ago before camp started. They both said their opinions, and John Dorsey was firm that, hey, we're not going to trade him unless we get what we want. And then Drew Rosenhaus is back in town Monday. But that felt like more like part of his normal summer routine where he visits camp, he visits his players. So and nothing came I was told nothing new was there. The Browns have not changed their stance. So I expect Duke to be here unless the Browns get blown away by a trade offer. 
I don't know if Duke will be here after the trade deadline in October if Kareem Hunt comes back, but I think stati- I think it's going to be status quo for a while. We haven't talked to Duke. We've requested to talk to Duke. Have not talked to him. You once he got hurt, usually don't let injured guys talk. So it'll probably be a few more days. That's the next kind of stage in this. What happens when we talk to Duke? Is he as firm about wanting to be traded? Does he back off and say, hey, let's focus on the season, which to me would be the right thing to do for the team? Um, so that that's the next thing to watch. But Duke's a professional, and even if he said that, hey, I really still want to be traded, I, I don't think that affects him on game day in practice. I think he's can compartmentalize enough that he's going to play hard. Well, Duke Johnson may not have been available to you guys over the weekend, but the Haslam's certainly yes. were. And, you know, of course, they don't speak out all that often. I think they've tried to take a step back in the public yeah. eye, but they made themselves available for some comments on Sunday. What were some of your takeaways? It was interesting. It's always, you know, it's always good to talk to the owners, obviously, because, you know, we see them, but they don't go on the record all the time. To me, what was so different about it is that we're always grilling them. You know, I mean, when we meet with them in training camp, it's always, well, is a coach on the hot seat? You went 0-16 last year. Uh, you, I mean, it, they're all hard questions. Why did you tr- fire the GM? I mean, that's they've been in charge for seven years now, and those are the questions because it's been so dysfunctional. The losses, and, and off the top of my head, I, I, the record is like, I'm going to screw this up, but like 28-84-1 or something crazy like that. Since they've taken over, it's, you know, it's just – almost incomprehensible how can you lose that much and have the turnover. Freddie's their fourth coach. John Dorsey's their fourth GM. And they've only been there seven years. So, But what's different this time is there's real excitement. There's real optimism about what the team can do. So they talked about that. You know, D said, yes, the expectation is to win. And Jimmy was pretty quick to say, hey, but we got a long way to go. There's a lot of work to do. Like, It seemed like he was, I don't know if a phrase is the right word, but really cautious about putting it out there that, hey, this is a year we're going to win just because everybody, if you know, if he said, yes, it's playoffs or bust and they didn't go to the playoffs, everybody would bring that quote up over and over again. So he was cautious about that. And then I asked him, I said, well, it's got to feel good to have the switch in expectations. Usually you come in and it's not, right? I mean, there's just nobody has this kind of excitement. And he said, well, yes, but it's kind of a double-edged sword. And I thought that was interesting because to me he meant when when there's no expectations, if you lose, that's what's expected, right? But now there are, and now there's pressure on us to win and pressure on us to, you know, find the right guys and pressure on Freddie and pressure on Dorsey. So I, I think there's scars there for how from how their regime started in Cleveland, and it'll take a lot of wins before those scars go away a little bit. That's just how I read the Haslam's because they've been criticized so often by fans, by media, and rightfully so, because they haven't been able to get it right. So, I, you know, that was the key takeaway for me, and then they also raved about Baker and how Baker's going to be the long-term answer, which we all knew, but they reaffirmed that. And then Freddie. I mean, Freddie hasn't coached a game yet, and Jimmy Haslam said, I expect him to be here for a long time. So, given his history with coaches... That is a quote that could come back and bite him if Freddie doesn't last beyond a year or two or three, which the, obviously the goal is that he does. But Hugh Jackson's the only bronze coach under Haslam to get that third year, and we saw how that turned out. The double-edged sword with the expectations, I think that's fascinating, simply because I don't think anybody 
in the fan base would be upset at ownership if things go wrong this year because from an owner's perspective, I mean, they've done basically everything that you yeah. could have asked as a fan. You know, what haven't they done? I right. mean, look, you went out and you hired a football guy in John Dorsey, and that seems to have worked on paper at least over the last, what, calendar year and a half maybe? Yeah, December 2017, sure. And, yeah. and they went out and they hired a head coach, very likable, seems to be saying and doing all the right things so far. What else yeah. can you ask from the ownership group? That's a great That's a great point. I'm guessing the Haslam's don't think that way because they've gotten so much criticism and because, I mean, let's say they go 6-10 and 10 this year, which is, I don't expect to happen, but it's not out of the realm, right? Stuff goes sideways, you get an injury here or there, Baker misses a few games. I, I just don't, I just don't think they would escape criticism, even if it's undeserved, just because of their track record. And it's their final decision to hire Freddie. And what if Freddie's not the right coach? You know, yes, John Dorsey looks like he's doing all the right things, but he was fired in Kansas City. So they took a chance on a quote-unquote, I don't want to call him a retread, but a guy who had been fired in the league. And I don't know why Jimmy hired him and Jimmy D hired him and made all the sense in the world because they needed a football guy they can trust because they just don't have the football background. So they needed to be able to turn it over to somebody, and that's what they've done with John Dorsey. And it's worked to this point. But if it goes wrong, you always go to the final decision maker, and that's the Haslam's. So right or wrong, they would be criticized. But your point is exactly right. They spent the money. They're not afraid to pay a coach that they fired, right? It's not like the Bengals who hang on to coaches. So I would agree that and – I, and I think I've always felt this way. I would say that the Haslam's have done – have really tried hard to turn this around. They've just made a bunch of bad hires. And at the end, that's what an ownership is judged for, right? I mean, Sashi Brown's a bad hire. Joe Banner turned out to be a bad hire. Mike Lombardi is a worse hire. Ray Farmer's a terrible. Like, and go down the list of bad hires they've had, and hopefully they fi- finally figured it out. And like Jimmy kept saying, you got to get the right people, which is John Dorsey in Freddie Kitchens, and you got to get the quarterback. And if you have the quarterback, you can kind of win in spite of a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that covers up a a lot of shortcomings. There's no question about that. And it sure seems as though they've got the right guy. And we'll hit on Baker in a a different episode for sure. But I think it's going to be fun for us to watch him in camp and see how he continues to develop a relationship with his receivers. And I know he's called out his offensive line before too, and that's not always a bad thing. But we'll get to Baker a little bit later on. About a week away now from the first preseason game against the Redskins. It's Thursday, August 8th. What area or what areas, in your mind, do you really think the Browns need the most amount of work before that first preseason game? Well, it's going to go back to the offensive line. I need to see them be more consistent running the ball because they've been hit or miss when they finally got the pads on and gone to the inside run drills and protecting, right? If, you know, I don't think the Baker's going to play a lot. I don't think OBJ is going to play a lot. But I think those five linemen should play a decent amount, and – whether it's Baker back there or Drew Stanton or Garrett Gilbert, they got to show that they can protect against a different front four or a different front seven. So that's one area I think you need to watch. And linebackers, we need to see how the linebacker thing shakes out because Taki Taki, Sione Taki Taki, the rookie third round pick out of BYU, feels like we're writing about him every day because he's either hitting Duke Johnson without pads and Duke gets mad. 
You know, Freddie yells at him because the defense had a bad red zone period. He lights somebody up once they have pads on, so it's a good look. Like he's just he's just so active and so aggressive, you can't help but notice him on the field. And I expect that to show up once the preseason games start. I think that'll continue to show up. And then the question is, does he push Joe Schobert for playing time? That seems like a stretch to me, but maybe it's not. You know, you draft a guy in the third round. Joe Schobert's in the last year of his rookie deal. You know, is, is this guy, he's, he might be tougher than Joe. Joe's, that's not Joe's strength. And I like Joe. And I'm going to write about him in the coming week. I had a nice talk with him. And Joe's a smart guy, and he's athletic, and I think he can cover. But you wouldn't say he's the mad dog in the meat market, you know. And Taki Taki has that reputation. I think he's shown that early in training camp. So I, I think that's something we really need to pay attention to. And can you see a shift? Because as of now, it's Schobert and Kirksey getting all those reps. Does that change at all? Good deal. Well, you mentioned that you've got a feature coming up on Joe Schobert this coming week. What other kinds of things do you have in the queue for brownzone.com? Well, we're going to talk to Baker again Wednesday, so that'll be good. See how he thinks the first week is going. We've talked a lot about his leadership, and you mentioned that. He called out the receivers for a scramble drill he was not pleased with, and he's screaming at him in the middle of the field, dropping an F-bomb. And just want to get kind of his reaction to that. I need to talk to him about these expectations for year two, you know, and I've written about it, but I haven't really talked to Baker about it. Pat Mahomes won MVP in year two. Carson Wentz almost won MVP. Jared Goff made the leap and go to the playoffs. It's not 15 years ago NFL. It's today's NFL where a lot of this is expected of young quarterbacks, and you put the pressure on of you're not getting paid a lot so we can sign a bunch of talent so we have a chance to win the Super Bowl because it's a full roster. And just how Baker approaches that, does he compare himself to those guys? He wasn't last year. He didn't like to do that. Didn't like to compare himself to other guys. But you know, hopefully, we'll get him to talk a little bit about, a little bit about that. Um, we got the orange and brown scrimmage coming up Saturday, so we'll talk to Freddie about the format. I'll have that Saturday, and usually some good action that comes out of that. There should be a bunch of fans at the stadium, and then I'm hope I'm going to be able to get to it. I think it's been really interesting. And we talk about Freddie a lot, but there's a lot to talk about with him. And first-year coach, to me, he he and Baker are keys one and two to the, how this season goes. And I knew Freddie had fire in him, but I didn't know he had this much fire in him. And he's yelling at everybody. He's yelling at officials. He's yelling at the kids spotting the ball if he's not doing it right. He's yelling at running backs. I mean, he's really vocal at practice and – I'm fine with that. I'm not saying with any kind of negativity. It just I it surprised me a bit that he had that in him, and it that would be so obvious so early. So I'm hoping to get it around to writing that, just because I think it's an interesting look into a guy that you know could come off as laid back. He's got that southern attitude to him, but there's a fire burning there. Well, and the fire burning certainly comes out in some of his pressers midday. You can certainly hear that in his voice. Sometimes he seems a little bit agitated, but look, the guy's working crazy hours. Training camp is not exactly a walk in the park for any coach, let alone the head coach, so it's easy to see why. Well, certainly a lot to look forward to this week on brownzone.com, but we're not wrapping up this edition (laughs) of the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast without talking about the golf shot of the week. I know that you did a little bit of golfing since the last time we had one of these conversations, and I believe it was yesterday. You were at Austin Cars Golf Outing, right? I was. Um, yeah, it's it's a low it's a it's a low bar, but I was asked to be a celebrity, and I use that term really loosely. 
for the golf outing, but it was great. It was on the east side of Beachmont Country Club. It raised money for Austin's charity. Uh, YOU is the charity. It helps kids. And I got paired up with a bunch of guys from Fox Sports, Ohio, and had a lot of fun. Dan, Tim, Dave, and Mike. Or Dan, Brent, Mike, and Dave. And uh, just had a real good time. And it's a real nice golf course. Um, we didn't sh- we didn't shoot great. I think we were four or five under. We drove the ball in the rough too often. And there's a lot of trees out there, and we didn't have a lot of good looks. But on number we was our eleventh. It was hole number eleven. It was our second hole of the day. We all hit it in the water. So we're dropping three, and I hit a wedge to about six feet and made the putt. So that was that was the best for me. We were able to save par, um, and it kind of showed you how our day was going to go. That we had to scramble for par on number 10, which is a par 5. Then we had to scramble for par on number 11. So it was a fight all day long, but it was a really good time. Nice. You saved par on a hole where all of you guys hit it into the drink? Yeah, which is really, I mean, we had five guys, and all five of us hit it left into the water. You know, you'd think somebody could have just hit an iron off the tee, but, uh, you know, everybody's thinking, oh, you know, I can hit a drive here and play, and nobody did. But, yeah, so it was good to say par. Um, unfortunately, my gr- my good shots were a little few and far between, but there were a handful of them, and that was probably the best one. Very nice. Well, you can't complain about saving par when everybody in the scramble hits it into the drink. <laughs> it was so, so bad. It yeah. was so bad. That's, that's, a, that's a heck of a par <laughs> save. No doubt about that. All right, Scott. Well, that's going to wrap up this week's edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. Always a pleasure to work with you. We look forward to doing it again next week. I can't wait. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Scott. All right, well, that's going to put the wraps on this one. Don't forget, next week we will come your way right before the very first preseason game of the 2019 season. It'll be the Browns and the Redskins, and I'm sure a lot will come down the pipe between now and then. For Scott Petrak, this is Andy Bullbarch saying thanks to you for tuning in to this edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast.